everybody! Welcome back to North Idaho Now. This is episode 189 for December 16th. Chance Watson bring you the news today. Being uh, sounding a bit clearer, uh, less sinus congestion, so you guys can actually understand what I'm saying, and I'm not having to take a breath every five seconds. This episode is brought to you by Hecla Mining Company. Hecla Mining Company is a leading low-cost silver producer with operating silver mines in Alaska, Idaho, and Mexico, and is a growing gold producer with operating mines in Quebec, Canada, and Nevada. They are the largest primary silver producer in the U.S., responsible for one-third of the silver produced in our nation. Their philosophy is to operate mines safely by promoting a deeply rooted value-based culture, leveraging mining skills dealt over the company's long history, and by innovating new practices. To learn more about Hecla Mining Company, please visit HeclaMining.com. Yes, everybody, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, missed another Tuesday episode for you guys. That's that's I think that's the first time that's ever happened uh, in the history of North Idaho now. Uh, but that's just how things shook out. Uh, as you guys listened to last week's episode, I dislocated my shoulder playing hockey. And then uh, to make to make me more of a pathetic sight, I uh, got a nice, nice cold that's it seems to be going around North Idaho. And well, I mean, tis the season, everybody. So, uh Got myself a nice cold, uh, and I, man, I was popping my ears like I was at, you know, 40,000 feet, 30,000 feet up in a plane. Um, God, the pressure, the pressure was, was pretty impressive, honestly. It, it was not, it was not comfortable in any way, but, uh, doing a lot better now on some good meds to, uh, to knock out that cold. Even the shoulder's doing a little better. Shoulder's doing a little better. The cold's doing a little better. So back with you for another episode today. I have a great interview for you guys. Uh, Fishing Game Friday. I know you guys uh, appreciate the outdoors segments that we have on our show. Uh, this week we're bringing on Andy Ducks and Jeff Strait. Uh, they're going to be talking about the Lake Ponderay fisheries and the status of rainbow trout in the lake. Uh, spoiler alert, it's doing well. And uh, if you're patient enough and you know just the right tricks, um, there's some pretty sizable trophy fish to be pulled out of Lake Ponderay. Um, I've, I've seen a couple of them myself, so, uh, definitely, well, we'll save the, we'll save the rest of that for the interview that we have coming up. Folks, I had to tell you right now, uh, went and finally saw Violent Night. This has got to be one of my, if not the favorite Christmas movie I've ever seen. Uh, it is, it's got a little bit of everything for everyone. It's, it still feels like a Christmas movie in nature because everything's kind of lighthearted and you still got to feel, you know, you believe in Santa and the kindness of everybody around that. There's, there's a happy holiday, but it's also very violent. Uh, the, the, the name, the name, uh, in the title, uh, is, is definitely lives up to it. Um, man, it is, it, it's, it reminds me of, a, another obscure kind of movie with Clive Owen called Shoot 'Em Up, uh, in that it's, it's, it's pretty gory, folks. Uh, uh, the, the fella from, um, Stranger Things who plays Hopper, uh, he definitely plays a fantastic Santa. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it too much. I don't want to spoil it for you guys. But um, if you are looking, this is definitely not a family Christmas movie. Uh, yet there are references to uh, family Christmas movies in it. Uh, Die Hard. Yes, Die Hard Christmas movie. Um, Home Alone. Lots lots of good uh, holiday season stuff sprinkled into the movie as well. While also, you know, kind of becoming its own thing, leaving it wide open for a sequel, which I would absolutely love absolutely love uh time for some seasons beatings folks that <laughs> you got to see this movie you absolutely got to see this movie uh santa santa is a is a former viking and uh just goes ham on the on a few people that are being naughty they're being naughty and uh santa santa's there to take care of the situation uh 
Got to go see it. 10 out of 10 for me. Um, definitely. I understand this isn't going to be everybody's holiday. This is not, if you're thinking Christmas vacation or something, this is definitely not your movie, but, uh, this is, this is, uh, definitely a fun take, a fun, violent take on, uh, on a holiday movie. So, uh, I, I absolutely recommend it. Go watch it. Uh, I still need to go see the Banshees of Inna Sharon. That's been something that's on my radar for quite a while now. Um, I've been post now that I've been posting movie times in the Coeur Press's entertainment section. I feel like I, I've got a better grasp on what is in the theaters right now and uh, making making more of an effort to try to get out there. Also, some sad news on the uh, on the superhero front. Henry Cavill axed as Superman, or it seems like even the movie's just not going to happen. Boy, I don't know where this came from. It, it seemed like he was just dropping. He just dropped The Witcher, which is a series that. You know, anybody who follows The Witcher and the TV shows and everything like that knows that Henry Cavill's a huge Witcher fan. He read the books, he plays the games. Uh, Henry Cavill, definitely a secret nerd uh, who who sits down and plays Dungeons and Dragons and everything like that. Um, he got the news that he's no longer Superman, but now it sounds like he's going to star in and produce Warhammer 40K. Um, folks, this is something that I'm not even really familiar with. I, I do know that it's uh, similar to D&D in the sense of like a tabletop game, uh, but boy, this is, it sounds like he, he's excited. Like he's been talking about it on the, on the project. And you know, it's something that I've always seen from afar, but then every time I've even remotely asked about it, it sounds like this is like a, this is a fandom rabbit hole that is like, you're going to, you know, what is Warhammer 40k? And then like 10 hours later, you still don't even know, you know, like you just got the background plot of like, you know, how the universe is set up. Uh, definitely sounds like a rabbit hole that I, I just don't have time to go down at the moment, but, uh, maybe, maybe just like, uh, you know, the Witcher three games or something, maybe, uh, the Warhammer 40 K movie with Henry Cavill brings me into it, um, into, into the genre and gives me kind of an idea of what the hell's going on. Uh, would love to see that. He's a great actor. Um, even, even with him dropping out of, uh, cause he's not going back to the Witcher. He's not going to do Superman. So, you know, people were throwing his name into the hat to be the next James Bond. Yes. A long time listeners of the show know that, uh, the, the James Bond, uh, James Bond speculation train has been rampant on this show for quite some time. Uh, I think, uh, you know, he was, he, basically already auditioned for the role of bond in my opinion with a man with the man from uncle i uh, think he did great in that so i i think henry Cavill would be a great james bond i think he could uh, he absolutely fits the part so hey maybe we maybe we we get to see him uh grace grace our movie screens in more of a, a familiar role as uh mi6's england's greatest secret agent i would i would love to see that all right, folks, without further ado, without more rambling, we're going to jump into our interview with Idaho Fishing Games, Andy Ducks, and Jeff Strait. Here we go. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Andy, Jeff, how we doing? I'm doing good. Thanks doing for having well. us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, getting a little colder out there. We just talked about kind of off mic, uh, kind of transitioning out of uh, the big game season, that kind of thing, into into some other stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, um, ice fishing season? Yeah, that's the good news for folks. I mean, we've had a real cold start to the winter, and that means ice is building, and we're already starting to have some early ice fishing opportunity on some of the, the small lakes in the region. And forecast here for the next week or so looks like it's just going to get colder. So I think we're going to have pretty good ice fishing in a lot of places um, as we move into winter here. So It's awesome. Uh, we talked a little bit off mic as well. Um, when it comes to, like, ice thickness and that kind of thing, not something that's necessarily follow, uh, tracked by you guys, right? 
Yeah, we don't really monitor that because it's so variable. Sure. Um, the big lakes don't really freeze very well, but the smaller lakes do, and we've got everything in between. Um, so yeah, we just um, have anglers use their judgment and you know use best practices sure. out there. If you don't feel comfortable, don't venture out on the ice. But um, certainly, uh, there's there's a lot of good opportunity as we get into winter to do that. Sure. I mean, it's a pretty dedicated uh, community I know of from from ice fishing, and uh, it seems like the last few years where we've had warmer than normal winters, they haven't really had the opportunity. So yeah, we have some winters where we really don't end up with much, if any, ice fishing. Um, and this is looking like one where hopefully we'll have quite a bit. That's good. That's good. Uh, kind of mentioned, are there are there some lakes that are like better for ice fishing than others? Well, most of our not from like a like a oh the fish are here kind of thing. More of just like a like a feasibility way. Yeah, I think the, the best thing I can say is a lot of the smaller lakes provide mm-hmm. the most opportunity because they sure. they freeze the quickest and yeah. stay frozen the longest. Um, whereas the bigger the water body, the less ice fishing time we have but other than that you know the the fish species that are there in the summertime are the same ones that are there in the winter sure. so um, but the ones that people spend a lot of time on are in particular things like perch fishing is popular yeah um and then we have a lot of our our stock trout lakes that people will go out and target those too but um really you can find good ice fishing in most of our lakes it's awesome yeah north idaho's got some good spots for it it seems like yep awesome cool i i did the more of the skating on the lake part but at the moment i, I learned my lesson about uh, uh getting on the ice and hurt yourself so <laughs> that's right <laughs> um all right guys we are here to talk a little bit about a f- uh, something that boy i, I grew up here and i i never even heard about this before the trophy rainbow trout fishery on Ponderay Lake. Yeah. Let's let's start with the basic bare bones. Wait, tell me a little bit about the background of this place. Yeah, so this is a fishery that really is, it's got a pretty storied history. Um, uh, rainbows were stocked in Lake Ponderay in 1941, and that was shortly after Kokanee were established in the 1930s. And so the, the rainbows we have are pretty unique too, because it's the same species of rainbow trout that you find in a lot of places. Um, but this is a particular strain of rainbow trout called Gerard strain rainbow trout. Okay. Also, a lot of people know them as cantaloupes or cams. Here. Okay. And it's a rainbow that's native to Kootenai Lake, BC, so just a few hours north of here. And they co-evolved with kokanee, and, and they, when they're available, make their diet mostly on kokanee, mm. and they can reach really large sizes. Whereas a lot of the other strains of rainbow trout will eat, you know, invertebrates, insects, things like that, just not nearly... Um, the growth potential that this strain of rainbow has. Mm-hmm. And so shortly after we stopped <clears> them <throat> into Lake Ponderay, the world record rainbow trout was caught in Whoa. six years afterwards, and it was a 37-pound rainbow. And wow. That record's since been broken elsewhere, but um, gives you an idea that very quickly this became a, a world-renowned trophy sure. fishing opportunity. And since that time, anytime we've been able to support strong kokanee numbers in Lake Ponderay, we've had... Um, the ability to produce these 20 plus pound rainbows sometimes sometimes fish even exceeding 30 pounds um, so it's pretty unique and a pretty awesome opportunity that that a lot of people enjoy absolutely uh, so when it comes to like the logistics of like the so they, they grow these fish there kind of is it how is it decided where they're released do they just go straight into Pondre Lake or sure so I mean we originally stocked them in the 1940s but, okay. but since that time uh, the population's been supported just sure. from from natural reproduction. I mean, uh-huh. we, we've continued to stock, you know, back in the old days we continued to stock some, but what we've learned since then is that the population naturally reproduces and mm-hmm. we don't need to stock. To, Doing good on its own? Yeah. Well, that's good. All right. Glad to hear that. Um, okay, so fast forward, I mean, it, this has been open for quite a while now. 
um, putting out? What what are in terms of like how many fish are they putting out? Is that is that something that is measured? Well, I guess you know that, like I said, it's natural reproduction now, so sure. um, we don't necessarily. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Enumerate how many are, are coming out I each see. year, yeah. but we definitely monitor trends in the population. Yeah. And the biggest thing we have to do with these rainbows is try to provide an abundant kokanee food supply. Oh, okay. so that's one of the things that we've put a lot of emphasis on in in recent years. So without getting too much into the details, the the, say, pondere, how do you do that? the pondere fishery um, really was in a tough spot about 20 years ago. So the kokanee population was on the verge of collapse um, in the early 2000s. And Any particular was, reason for that? There was. So we had a, a non-native lake trout population. Oh that was established and rapidly increasing in abundance. So that extra predation when you've got, you already have things like bull trout and rainbow trout eating kokanee, and then you add this other predator to the mix, and there just wasn't enough kokanee to go around. What do kokanee feed on? Kokanee feed on zooplankton. Okay. Um, but then you, but they provide, and they only get up to be like, in Ponderay commonly, like, you know, 9 to 12 inches sure. of adult kokanee. So they're just perfect size mm-hmm. for these predators to, right. to consume. So... Since the early 2000s, we've been aggressively removing lake trout in Lake Ponderay to keep their numbers in check, and we've been able to successfully recover the kokanee population. And since you know about 2012, when we when we were able to rebuild kokanee and start um, that kokanee fishery again, rainbows responded to that, and we started to see rainbows grow faster. And so for about the past decade. We've seen a resurgence in that trophy rainbow fishery, and especially the past several years. It's awesome. kind of just gotten back to a level like it would have been in the good old days, and frankly, right now, it's it's the best trophy sure. rainbow fishery on planet Earth, frankly. Wow. So, really That's cool. Fish regularly that get caught out there now every year that are over 20 pounds. So That's that's incredible. Yeah, last year there was a fish that was caught um, that weighed roughly 32 pounds. So we're, we're talking within several pounds of that former world record. So, wow. I mean, it's really functioning at a high level again, which is really cool to see. And anglers are getting out there and, and enjoying that. Sure, absolutely. So you guys are kind of encouraging people to go after some rainbows now. Absolutely. Well, and we're not encouraging harvest necessarily. Sure. I mean, we have regulations if people want to harvest. Sure. You know, we're allowing two fish a day, one over 20 inches. Um, but a lot of folks choose to catch and release, and that's fine. Sure. Um, but, yeah, we're trying to provide that opportunity to, to have anglers out there getting after big rainbows. What are the best ways to go about that? Well, you want to talk about that a little bit, Jeff? I can talk a little bit about it, yeah, sure. Um, the most common method, guys, you're using on the lake are, is you're obviously trolling. And mm-hmm. so they're running a system of, of planer boards, they're called, where, which these take these lines out to the side of your boat. And then they're able to run up to 12 or 14 rods with different tackle off of that, off the back of the boat. And they're just trolling at pretty slow speeds. And these fish are pelagic, which means they're kind of anywhere they want to be in the lake. They're not like hugging structure or anything like that. So these guys just troll through the lake and you're running flies on the surface or, you know, different lures that might dive to certain depths, some downriggers, but... I think if you talk to different anglers, they'll all say they have the magic, the magic color pattern, the magic sure. lure, whatever it is, um, or that spot, or that spot, that spot, you know. you know. But frankly, you know, there's a lot of different color patterns that work, a lot of different styles, and I think yeah. it's just all about getting in front of the right fish at the right depth in the water column, wherever they're at, and 
one thing about it is it definitely is a, a specialized fishery and so it does require you know a boat and a lot of gear it's it's um it's not a a, a good fishery for a novice angler but okay um, okay but like i said the, and the catch rates aren't super high i mean you got to put your time in to catch these fish but the reward is if you catch one quite often you know you can be dealing with with a pretty large fish so um but times a year too i mean the best fishing typically is in the spring and the fall so like may june and then again mm. um october november kind of the peak months um and part of that is because that's when these fish are up near the surface um whereas in the summer the surface temps get pretty warm and these fish are deeper so that kind of concentrates them up near the surface in this big deep lake so at least you have a little better idea like where to target them depth wise gotcha okay um i one question that just came to my mind while I was thinking about it. we're talking about rainbows and whatnot and re and regrowing that population, but as long as I've been here, we always known that um, uh, what was uh, what's the one trout that you're just like so you just avoid like always since as long as I've been here, um, um, catch and release. You like, might be thinking about bull trout. Yeah, bull yep. trout exactly. Yep. Catch and release for bull trout. Gotcha, exactly. So with bull trout, like can these methods that are used to you know repopulate are they been with with bull trout or something like that? Or with cutthroat or, you know, anything like that? Yeah, so commonly folks that are out rainbow fishing will will catch other species like sure. bull trout, you know, just... Similar methods in which to catch them? Okay, yeah. gotcha. And these fish that are, you know, rainbows, bull trout, they're, they're all eating kokanee. So the anglers are uh, imitating kokanee in many cases, you know, using a... What works a for one like works for all kind of thing. Okay, yeah. I yeah. see. So in those types of cases, it's just to, you know, make sure of what you're catching and keep an eye out? Sure. Yeah. Obviously, we need anglers to, you know, be aware of fish ID and, and things like that. But Gotcha. Makes sense. Cool. All right. We also wanted to talk a little bit about the Angler Logbook Program. What's yeah. a, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I can take this one. So these fish are, they're out in, the, in this enormous lake, and they're not really sitting on the bottom like other fish species are. They're, they're pretty hard for us to get our hands on with kind of traditional sampling gear in, in numbers that allow us to monitor the population sufficiently on our own. So one thing that uh, Fishing Game started before I before I was here and, and I kind of picked up and it continued and tried to improve was this logbook program, with, which helps us get catch rate information from anglers who are out there and they know the fishery as well as anybody and are out there putting their time in. And so to help us improve participation in that program and get our hands on as much information as we can we started a few years ago incentivizing participation in this program so we tried to narrow the window of time down in which guys were were asking anglers to fill out these log books and we incentivized it by giving out prizes like yeti coolers and mm-hmm. mugs and hats um things like that and all, all we're asking guys to do is for two weeks in the fall is write down on the day if they fished how many hours they fished how many rods how many fish they caught just that kind of information that helps us track how many, how often fish are getting caught by anglers and then the size structure of fish that are being caught by anglers. So anglers get a quick length on their fish, write that down as well, and we're all of a sudden able to look at the sizes of fish being caught as well as the catch rates. Um, and we just wrapped up this past year's logbook season at the end of November, so I'm currently sifting through the data on that and we'll see what it, what it holds compared to last year. But... Um, how does that data help you guys? So understanding trends in catch rate is important. I mean, that's one of the you know key 
monitoring tools for, for fisheries biologists is understanding some sort of catch rate as an, as an index of abundance or something out there. So since we can't easily get our hands on enough fish ourselves or estimate abundance for these fish, using catch rates to, to monitor this fishery is, is our really our only tool and, and a pretty good one um, when we have the data in hand. So. And one more example of that would be, you know, I mentioned these things depend on kokanee for food. So let's yeah. say we see changes in the number of kokanee in the lake. Let's say kokanee were to decline a bit, and you would expect maybe growth rates of these rainbows would slow down. Or in a year when we have more kokanee, growth rates would, would increase. Well, by getting the information from anglers, we can we can see if that's bearing out in the fishery, right? And yeah. if and if these or if anglers are you know observing things like oh we don't think we're catching as many big fish this year or we think we're catching more big fish we have some information to like put that to the test and um not have it be just some random like well one angler caught two sure. fish and we're going to base everything on that we actually have like a bigger sample to to see if that's what's actually going gotcha on like it's like scale it's like the eye test kind of thing yeah. you know like you're you've got physical people on the ground kind of getting their vibe of what what's going on yeah that and we kind of pull that together with the other work we do and you know we kind of end up with these kind of multiple lines of evidence that'll allow us to kind of assess well how are things working out there and is our management effective or do we need to change anything that type of gotcha so going off of that what have you guys learned so far well, for over the last several years, I mean, as Andy already spoke to, the fisheries kind of rebounded from, you know, those low kokanee number days. And Good. I think in the last three years, we've seen steady increases in the number of of fish or the, the, the proportion of the fish that anglers are catching is getting bigger. So we're seeing more of these, I think we used a, a threshold of like 30 inches or something, and we're mm-hmm. seeing... In the last several years, many more fish being caught by anglers that are over 30 inches. So I'm suggesting that, you know, kokanee's rebounded, these fish are growing well, and we're seeing that play out in the actual sizes of fish being caught by anglers. So um, that's that's one, I guess, important piece of, of evidence we take from it, along with catch races. We're seeing bigger fish caught, for sure. And, and on average, you might talk about how long it takes people to catch oh, one of these fish. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and as Andy mentioned earlier, too, this isn't a fishery where you can just go out and expect to catch rainbows guys are i think the average number of hours per rainbow last year was about eight damn per boat so guys are out there all day and looking for that one and looking for that one and this year i mean this year so far it looks like guys were catching more fish i think it dropped down to around five hours per fish on average okay um but it's variable day to day when you look at you know we look at the daily catch rates you know, for a week, it might fluctuate from two hours per fish to 10 hours in that week. So it's all about the, the weather conditions out there on the lake as well can can dictate whether or not they're they're catching rainbows. But yeah, it's not something where you're going to go out and immediately catch your 20 pound rainbow <laughs> in, a, in an hour. Right. Know? Well, that'd be way too easy. Yeah. Well, and one of the metrics, I guess, that anglers use is, is there's uh, what are called patch fish that, mm-hmm. that the Lake Pondre Idaho Club gives out. And so that's something that for decades has been on the lake and if you catch a, a fish 25 pounds or greater you, you get a, a patch at the oh wow gives out. so that's kind of like the the gold standard if you will if you're an angler like a lot of guys fish out there for years or even their whole life trying to catch a 25 pound or better right. rainbow which is pretty cool because there's not many places that you can go and even have a opportunity to catch a rainbow right. that big but Pondere is one of those rare places where where that's that can happen it's crazy it's big lake big deep deep yep. lake absolutely well that's awesome guys uh it sounds like things are going it's it's crazy how i think about how like just the the population and the health of the, the population of one species of fish you know affects so much throughout like just kokanee populations yeah 
affecting so many others. Like it just branches off from there. Well, that's awesome, guys. Um, what is the? I mean, when we're talking, when we're looking forward, how are things looking for the next season for fishing? That kind of thing. Yeah, I guess just broadly. I mean, we're continuing to see from our surveys this year that kokanee abundance is holding up well. So we're optimistic that's going to continue next year, and that should lead to good rainbow fishing. Um, but in general, we definitely have challenges out there to, to supporting um, a kokanee population. Like I mentioned, we have to keep this lake trout population at low abundance. We've been successful at doing that. We've had some other non-native fish get established in the lake in recent years, so we're doing some similar work to keep um, walleye at a low abundance because mm. they also um, will consume kokanee and um, northern pike are another one that we've seen show up more in recent years. So there's just a lot of changes that are occurring yeah. in the fishery, and we have to find a way to balance all of that um, to continue to have a sustainable fishery. Got to get rid of those uh, carnival goldfish that people dump in the lake. <laughs> well, Is that, that too. <laughs> I, 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 the craziest thing I ever caught out of one of the northern lakes was this red-eyed tench out of Fernand. Swear it. It was the creepiest thing. It looks evil. It was so creepy. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, boy, I think that that's about it, guys. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you want to throw in there? I think the last thing I would just share with folks is, I mean, the Lake Pondere fishery is, is big and complex. Rainbows are part of it, but there's yeah. a lot of other stuff going on out there. And if people are interested in learning more, you can go to our website, um, which is idfg.idaho.gov. And then if you put after that forward slash LPO, um, we have a web page dedicated to just Lake Pondere fisheries and a lot of information on their past news releases and videos, a bunch of bunch of cool stuff. So, awesome. um, or just go to the Fishing Game website and just go to the search and just type in Pondere and Sweet. it should get you there too. Awesome, very cool, guys. I, I think this is something that's very important, especially not only for the the health of the lake, but for anglers out there and whatnot. Um, and I would imagine that the health of the fish in Pondere, the rainbows and whatnot, affect the the bordering and the outlying areas as well. Uh, like Priest River and that kind of thing, I would assume. Yeah, there's it's a big open system, yep. so fish don't, yeah. It's not, it's not just one area. It affects lots of stuff. Sure. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys, for coming in. Appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, folks, time for some local news, starting out with headlines from the Coeur d'Alene Post Falls Press, Wednesday, December 14th. Headline, a win for River's Edge. This is by Bill Bewley. River's Edge Apartments came before the Coeur d'Alene Planning Commission on Tuesday with three requests and came away with a queen, a clean sweep, not a queen sleep. <laughs> clean sweep. Key points of the commission were that the North Idaho Centennial Trail would run along the Spokane River in the development and the public could access it and it would provide more housing. Quote, this puts the trail on the water, which is where it should be, said developer Lance, Dougla Lance Douglas following the unanimous 6-0 decision. It's a great asset to the community and legacy project that people will enjoy for generations. The property is west of Atlas Waterfront Park and south of Seltis Way along the Spokane River. The commission agreed to change the zoning on about 7.5 acres from R12 to R17 and to zone down about 13 acres from C17 commercial to R17 residential. It approved a special use permit for a density increase to R34 that will allow for a maximum overall density of 26.4 units per acre. It also agreed to a modification of the planned unit development already approved to remove a 431-unit mini storage facility and to remove 28 single-family residential lots along the river and replace them with 296 multifamily units, public open space, and a 16-foot-wide trail adjacent to the river that allows public access to the river. 
Quote, this is public open space where you're going to feel welcome, said Commissioner John Ingalls. I support this project. River's Edge has a history in Coeur d'Alene. It was first heard by the Planning Commission in December of 2018. The original proposal was for an 850-unit apartment facility with a public trail along the river. The commission recommended approval of the request for a zone change, but in March of 2019 it was denied by the city council. The second proposal was heard in July of 2019. The PUD and subdivision consisted of a 250-unit apartment facility, a mini-storage facility, and a private gated residential community along the river. The commission approved it. The third proposal requested a request was heard in August of 2020. This allowed Douglas to incorporate the city's 3.6-acre property that bisected the applicant's property into the overall project. The proposal allowed for a 384-unit apartment facility, 431 mini-storage units, and 28 single-family residential lots along the river. The commission said okay. Under that development plan, there was no public access to the river, and the trail was directed away from the river as well. The 384-unit apartment project is under construction. The 296 additional apartments will bring the project to 680 units, which is about what Ingalls said it should be four years ago when it first came to the commission. Douglas said trees planted along the trail will provide a buffer from the apartment buildings, which will have an 80-foot setback, so they will not be easily visible from the river. The additional apartments would create more housing supply and could drive down housing costs, commission members said. Douglas said 5% of the units will be dedicated to workforce housing. Ooh, I like that. Ingalls said he saw River's Edge as coming full circle with improvements. Quote, the waterfront amenities as presented tonight are something we should feel proud of here, he said. Not everyone agreed. Resident Suzanne Knutson was there four years ago when a large crowd came out in opposition to River's Edge. Quote, feel like this is a bait and switch and I don't feel like it's in line with the comprehensive plan, she said. Knutson expressed concerns that the area is being overdeveloped. Quote, this pillage has got to stop, she said. The project must still go before the city council for consideration. Mixed bag once again. Uh, Housing crisis is definitely an issue here in North Idaho. Only way to fix that is to get more housing. But uh, as somebody who's native from the area, boy, uh, don't necessarily love all the uh, development in the area. Can be can be a tough pill to swallow. Seeing all the prairie disappear. Moving on, urban renewal leadership changes in Hayden. This by Devin Weeks, a new Hayden Urban Renewal Agency executive director is in. The chair is out, and the future of urban renewal districts in Hayden will more more thoroughly be explored in the near future. Welch Comer Project Manager Melissa Cleveland was elected in a near-unanimous vote to replace Rob Wright as the agency's executive director during a Monday meeting of the board. Cleveland resigned from the city of Hayden in August of 2021 after nearly three years as the community development director. Board member Matt Roeder cast the one dissenting vote. Wright, who is the executive director of the board for five years, is also a city engineer. Quote, I'm wearing two hats, Wright said after the meeting. I think it boiled down to me not having enough time to do both of my jobs. Now I can refocus on my city tasks. Wright said he plans to continue to attend meetings for a few months to assist Cleveland as she transitions into the role. Board Chair John Young announced his resignation via email Monday evening. His decision to step down followed the meeting, which included a discussion about urban renewal district board members and land ownership within the district. Roeder disclosed during the meeting that he had asked former Senator Mary, uh, Mary Souza, a Republican from Coeur d'Alene whose term ended November 30th after serving since 2014, to solicit information from the Idaho Attorney General's office on the issue. 
I'm guilty, Rauter said. He said that he first asked the attorney gen- uh, agency's attorney, Pete Bredson, about board members' ability to buy pro- uh, property in the urban renewal district. Quote, he did respond, and I appreciate that. That that would take an, take an analysis or so forth. So what I did was asked our senator, Mary Souza, to ask the AG to answer that question, Rutter said. Ritter distributed Deputy Attorney General J.J. Winters' response, stating that if a board member voluntarily acquired real property within the Urban Renewal Project area, that board member violates Idaho Code 50 uh, 2017. The remedy, Winters wrote, is removal by a majority vote of the local governing body only after a hearing. Young, who has served on the board since 2010, purchased property within the district three years ago, Young said he was surprised by this new information as he sought legal counsel, spoke with the executive director, and announced to the board when the purchase was originally made. The confusion lies in whether the entire urban renewal district is considered an urban renewal project, as described in Idaho Code. Young's counsel found the purchase to be legal. Winter stated that his analysis was not a finding that any violation occurred and limited to a very specific factual scenario presented in the inquiry. Hayden Mayor Scott Forsell accepted the resignation with regret. He said Young had honorably served Hayden in several capacities, giving much of his time to ensure the city is prosperous as it grows. The Urban Renewal Agency board may function for a time with a vacancy. Forsell will begin looking at the potential candidates to fill the volunteer position, who will have to be approved by the city council. The next meeting of the Hayden Urban Renewal Agency will be at 3 p.m. January 9th in the city council chambers. All right, moving on. Kootenai Health Board OK's new structure. This by press staff. The Kootenai Health Board of Trustees on Tuesday approved moving forward with a transition from the district hospital structure to a nonprofit status. The vote was 6-1, to one, with Steve Matheson providing the dissenting vote. Katie Brody, Kootenai Health Board of Trustees Chair, said the change will give Kootenai Health the advantage of a modern contemporary organizational structure. Quote, I am pleased with the outcome of today's vote, she said in a press release. This board has engaged in a thorough evaluation of the benefits and challenges of converting to a 501c3. We were well prepared to make this decision. CEO John Ness said Kootenai Health is one of only 22 district hospitals of a similar size left in the United States. As Kootenai Health tries to keep pace with the community's growth, the nonprofit model will put it on an even playing field with other hospitals of its size and scope, he said. Once the transition is complete, which could be in May, the existing board will remain intact. Future board members will be appointed rather than elected. Ness said they do not anticipate the patients, physicians, or employees will notice a difference. The transition will mean Kootenai Health will no longer be a governmental entity and will not have the right to assess taxes on the community, something it has not done since 1995, or exercise its right of eminent domain. It also means Kootenai Health will not be bound by open meeting and public disclosure requirements, which are a disadvantage in a competitive market like the one it's in, trustee Robert Colvin previously said. A white paper that outlined the benefits, drawbacks, and considerations for the transition was recently released by Kootenai Health. It said the nonprofit model provided certain benefits such as enhanced access to capital and diversified investment opportunities. In the 2022 legislative session, the Idaho Senate and House of Representatives approved Idaho House Bill 603, which provides district hospitals the opportunity to transition to a nonprofit 501c3 model. The law, which took effect July 1st, has been available to county hospitals since 1986. Tuesday's vote follows a follows a vote Monday by the Kootenai Health Foundation's Board of Directors, which unanimously supported the change. All right, looks like that's probably going to happen. Moving on, Thursday, December 15th headlines. 
State Control States Control Limited at NIC. This is by Kay Thornbrew. Though state-level leaders are closely watching the chaos at North Idaho College, they say they have limited control over the college's operations. Quote, It is unfortunate to see the college's college experiencing turmoil amid an ongoing investigation into its accreditation, which would significantly impact current NIC students, businesses, and the entire region if lost, said a statement received by the press on Wednesday from the office of Governor Brad Little. Little's office weighed in after, over the course of three meetings last week, the NIC Board of Trustees cast split votes to hire a new attorney, place NIC President Nick Swain on administrative leave, unsuccessfully invite former wrestling coach and interim president Michael Sabali to return as acting president, and then extend the same job offer to an unnamed candidate. Yeah, it's... Definitely some interesting moves there. Quote, North Idaho voters elected NIC's Board of Trustees with the expectation that they will act with the institution's best interests in mind and lead appropriately, said the statement from the governor's office. The state of Idaho is not involved in NIC's operations outside of what is statutorily required. The Idaho State Board of Education released a similar statement Wednesday, and it read, quote, By statute, Idaho community colleges are governed by locally elected boards of trustees, not the State Board of Education, said the State Board. Although the State Board of Education has statutory authority to approve academic and career technical education programs offered at NIC, it does not have the authority over general governance of the college. The State Board Senate has received numerous questions and comments about recent decisions at NIC, many expressing concerns about the college's accreditation. NIC is required under Idaho State Board of Education governing policy to be accredited by the Northwest Commission on Colleges and Universities, as are all Idaho public colleges and universities. NWCCU accreditation determinations are made independently without input or oversight from the state board. The NWCCU sanctioned a North Idaho College with a warning in April, citing persistent issues with the Board of Trustees. In order to resolve the NWCCU's concerns, the college was required to hire a permanent president and fill vacant positions in the president's cabinet. Last week, trustees put the permanent, permanent president hired last summer on administrative leave at the recommendation of the board's new attorney and froze hiring for vacant cabinet positions. Oof. NIC trustees will meet again December 21st, not today, as they were decided when they met Saturday, although action on a meeting date change was not on the agenda for that meeting. Board Chair Greg McKenzie moved forward with a motion to amend the agenda after saying the board was following a section of Idaho open meeting law that allows them to do so. The subsection of the law cited by McKenzie states action cannot be taken on an amended agenda item unless an emergency is declared. Though one trustee had a conflicting engagement scheduled and another wasn't present Saturday to give input, McKenzie said it was impossible to have the meeting any, uh, any day other than today. When questioned about the emergency by trustee Terry Zimmerman, McKenzie indicated the emergency was, quote, to address the leadership at the college. What? There are There is no acting president of NIC at this time since the trustees placed Swain on administrative leave and Sabali turned down their offer for him to return. Quote, we're working at a rapid pace to make that agenda happen, he said. It's, ti it's time critical and time sensitive. NIC announced Wednesday morning that no meetings would take place today, but that a meeting was now scheduled for December 21st and that an agenda would be forthcoming. McKenzie said Saturday that another open me another meeting must occur quickly so the board can cure any violations of Idaho's open meeting laws from the previous three meetings. Huh? 
Quote, nobody wants to admit a mistake was made, but out of an abundance of caution, I'm willing to have a discussion on open meeting law violations, he said. The comment contrasted McKenzie's statements at a different special meeting two days prior when he maintained that no violations occurred. Quote, any newspaper articles implying that open meeting laws are violated seem to have an agenda, he said last Thursday. Okay, so definitely seems like he's backtracking on that. The next meeting of the NIC Board of Trustees is scheduled for Wednesday, December 21st at 6 p.m. at Schuler Performing Arts Center. I really wish things would calm down at NIC. Moving on, Lyons responds to McComber's claims. This is by Kay Thornbrew. The former attorney for North Idaho College is pushing back against accusations leveled against him by Art McComber, the college's new legal counsel. Mark Lyons resigned as college, uh, college attorney in late November after 23 years of service, citing tensions on the board of trustees. McComber, who was hired by the trustees during their December 5th meeting, claimed at a special December 8th meeting of the board that Lyons was, had his wrongfully withheld records from him and is working against the college. Quote, Frankly, I was shocked to hear Art McCumber suggest that I'm doing something nefarious or something to hurt the college, Lyons said. That's personally offensive to me, and it's absurd. McCumber, who declined to be interviewed for this story, emailed Lyons December 6th to request files related to the college. Quote, I look to drop by your office very soon to pick up all NIC records, McCumber wrote. You have 10 calendar days to transfer the records, which should be plenty of time to make copies that you deem needed for yourself at your cost. Okay. Included with the email was a memo from NIC Board Chair Greg McKenzie instructing Lyons to collect the entire, quote, NIC-related document file and NIC records in all forms, including notes, emails, and contact information for past and pending matters. But Lyons said he has no files to give. Quote, I was shocked, McCumber told NIC trustees last week. I am of the opinion that he, that he is working against NIC, that he wants NIC to fail. Boy, I'm starting to think the same thing. In an emailed reply to McCumber, Lyons said his law firm returned all original records to college personnel. The final drafts of any documents created by Lyons' firm, such as contracts or leases, are with NIC, not in Lyons' office. McCumber said last week that it's, quote, standard practice to hand over all files to a client's new attorney. Lyons, however, said it's only standard to provide a successor with records related to ongoing projects and to ask for the law firm's files is, quote, inappropriate. Lyons maintained that he has no college documents that McCumber needs. Lyons' resignation came after the election of three new trustees, Terry Zimmerman, Brad Corkill, and Mike Wagner. In the first meeting of the new board, Wagner formed a majority block with the holdover trustees Todd Banducci and Greg McKenzie, who had frequently clashed with Lyons. Branducci, Banducci introduced the resolution to hire McCumber, who penned both the resolution and his own fee agreement. Hmm. Convenient. He also made the motion to place NIC President Nick Swain on administrative leave as recommended by McComber. McComber said the move was necessary so he and McKenzie can investigate a change in Swain's contract, which occurred in August with the board's approval. Back then, Lyons said he made a scrivener er, scrivener's error. Boy, I've been struggling with that every, every, every time I have to say it. Or an unintentional mistake when drafting a contract related to the termination clause. Okay. The contract originally said, quote, either party could terminate it without cause. Now it provides that the contract, quote, may be terminated by mutual agreement of the parties by the president without cause or by the board for cause. McCumber contended that it was a, quote, a material change and required investigation, while Lyons said the change is self-explanatory. 
It's unclear what McCumber and McKenzie might investigate because the discussion about the change and decision to approve it occurred open in open session. Both the meeting minutes and a recording of the meeting are publicly available. Quote, you can investigate what happened simply by going back to the board meeting where it's all laid out, Lyons said. Oh boy. All right. Well, once again, hoping things calm down and get better at NIC. Moving on, Friday, December 16th headlines. Burns named Citizen of the Year. This is by Bill Bewley. Before the 2022 Coeur d'Alene Regional Chamber's uh, Citizens of the Year was announced Thursday night, a few clues were offered as to his identity. This person was born and raised in Ohio, is a graduate of the University of Idaho, go Vandals, spent a few decades in the industrial forest product products industry, and belongs to the Coeur d'Alene Rotary Club. His influence extends to key projects throughout the city, including the Coeur d'Alene Public Library, McEwen Park, Memorial Field and the Croc Center, Riverstone, Miller River, and Atlas Waterfront Park. Quote, The 2022 Citizen of the Year plays a role in ensuring that our community provides healthier neighborhoods, more attractive public spaces, a strong local economy, quality jobs, and housing opportunities. City Administrator Toy Timonson said to the crowd of about 125 at the the Coeur d'Alene Resort, quote, This individual is a key leader in public and private development projects to help make sure those things happen, which improves our overall quality of life here in North Idaho. By then, everyone in the room knew who it was. Tony Burns, executive director of Ignite CDA. Burns was honored, but downplayed his role. Quote, when you really think about it, I guess I equate myself to a bus driver, he said. He credited his visionary community leaders and board members for his success in leading the city's urban renewal agency. The chamber's annual meeting and awards banquet was marked by passionate speeches and accolades for individuals and organizations, followed by applause and standing ovations. The Chamber's, community, the Chamber's Committee of the Year Award went to, went to the Leadership Committee, chaired by Lindsay Allen. She said they took the, community, the committee to the foundation and rebuilt it. Quote, this is for everyone that put work in this year, Allen said. Nonprofit of the Year went to Orchard Ridge Senior Living. Small Business of the Year Award went to the Village Bakery, owned by Todd and Dana Bellafule. Bellafule. Yeah. Yeah, we'll go with that. Large businesses of the year went to business, not business, not, nope, not business, not large business. That's not a thing. Large business of the year went to Numerica Credit Union. The Ed Abbott Volunteer of the Year Award went to Lindsay Allen, president of the Coeur d'Alene Regional Realtors. Well, congratulations, everybody. It sounds like they are well-deserving of those awards. Moving on, more great news from NIC. Just kidding. NIC employees vote no confidence in board. This is by Kay Thornbrew. North Idaho College faculty and staff issued resolutions of no confidence in the board of trustees this week. Great. That's great. So so good. Love that. Separate resolutions passed by both the faculty assembly and the staff assembly contend the board is failing to support the college's mission and call for NIC president Nick Swain, who's tr- who trustees placed on administrative leave last week, to be immediately restored to his role. Quote, it's us speaking as one voice, said Staff Assembly Chair Carrie Simonette. The Faculty Assembly's resolution stated it it reaffirms three previous resolutions of no confidence presented to the board on October 26, 2021, February 2, 2022, and March of 18, 2022. Quote, since those resolutions, not only has the Board of Trustees not addressed any of the Faculty Assembly's previously resolved concerns, but they have instead continued to demonstrate the same troubling behaviors of non-compliance with basic governance standards, said the most recent resolution of no confidence. 
It pointed out the specific troubling behaviors as failures to maintain institutional integrity, demonstrate clear authority, roles and responsibilities, maintain an effective system of leadership, and demonstrate transparent decision-making. The faculty's resolution said it was initiated in response to the board's actions at three recent meetings that occurred last week. That includes trustees voting to suspend numerous NIC policies related to contracting for professional services, presidential authority, filling new and vacant positions in college policy for the creation and elimination of college policy and procedure. Faculty contend the board is in direct violation of standards for precipitatory participatory governance set by the Northwest Commission on Colleges and Universities, NIC's accrediting organization, which sanctioned the college without a, with a warning in April. Placing Swain on administrative leave has disrupted the college's ability to meet its mission and created an environment of distrust and uncertainty on campus, staff and faculty said. Faculty said the trustees have created a leadership vacuum at the college's highest operational level. A panel representing the NWCCU took notice of multiple past resolutions while preparing a report on NIC. Quote, the board of trustees at North Idaho College is dysfunctional, the report said. Oh, that's an understatement. Several resolutions of no confidence have been issued by faculty and staff leadership bodies. The previous resolutions appeared to have no impact on the board's behavior, the NWCCC panel observed. Though the, though the staff assembly's resolution is directed toward all five members of the board, Simonette said not all trustees bear responsibility for the recent turmoil at the college. Quote, there are three board members and one lawyer that we're concerned with, she said. Oh, makes sense. She referred to trustees Greg McKenzie, Tom Banducci, and Mike Wagner, as well as newly hired attorney Art McComber. Trustees voted 3-2 last week to suspend NIC policies that require the contract for legal services to go out to bid and hire McCumber on the spot. Ooh, I don't like that. In a subsequent special meeting, McCumber recommended that the board place Swain on leave while a detail of the president's contract is investigated. Okay. Uh, the faculty's resolution called McCumber's reasoning an excuse, adding that a change to Swain's contract was a, typogra- a typo- typographical error that was identified and corrected in an open meeting. The Associated Students of North Idaho College also passed a vote of no confidence in the board last week. The resolution issued by the student government called for trustees to reinstate Swain and to exercise complete transparency. Quote, the board's behavior is unacceptable, as NIC President Damian Maxwell said last week. Maxwell was not permitted to speak at a recent special meeting of the trustees, where the board chair Greg McKenzie also refused to read as NIC's resolution into the record. Re- to read the faculty and staff resolutions in full, visit the Press.com. Calm. All right, everybody, let's jump north to hear some headlines from the Bonner County Daily Bee out of Sandpoint for Wednesday, December 14th. Headline, sweet, sweet, but but spelled differently, S-W-E-E-T and S-U-I-T-E. Very, very clever headline here, gang. Very, we, we're just... You know what? I think most of the the journalists in uh, in the Coeur Press and and the the B and the Hagadon News Network they we really got into it. It's not about the money, or the fame. It's it's for the puns. We're in it for the puns, folks. So so when you, when you get a clever headline like "Sweet Sweet," uh, you you know it's that that gets you through the day. <laughs> yeah, we're in the I'm in the right career field. Yes, got it. All right, sweet sweet. A computerized tomography scanner combines a series of X-ray images taken at different angles to create a cross-sectional image of the bones, blood, vessels, and soft tissues. It provides the the practitioner more detailed information than a standard X-ray. High demand on the existing CT scanner led to Bonner General Health to seek funding for a second one. 
With grant money in hand, construction started on September 6th, and the new suite was opened with a ribbon-cutting ceremony and celebration December 6th. Quote, The need for a second CT scanner has become increasingly apparent as our population grows, creating more demand for emergent services, Daniel Holland, Diagnostic Imaging Director, said. Quote, Before this edition, Bonner General Health had one CT scanner to serve ER patients, inpatients, and all outpatients in our region. Serving these demographic groups has become increasingly complex with our population rising. A CT scanner is a critical tool in diagnosing strokes and trauma. At BGH, during the years 2014 to 2020, the CT volume increased by 73%, creating ongoing challenges in providing the most critical patients with timely care. Having an available and open CT scanner for patients in the ER is essential to making an accurate diagnosis and transfer. The second challenge was having redundancy in the area's health systems, officials said. Quote, when our scanner goes down for, our, for preventative maintenance or equipment malfunction, it changes how our EMTs and the emergency department practice medicine, Holland said. Without proper equipment, the patient will be diverted from our facility to other more extensive facilities, which take 40 to 60 minutes to reach. Such obstacles create delays in, rec- in receiving care, delays these patients can't afford. In addition, it forces patients to be transferred due to the inability of diagnose, he said. Quote, with a second scanner, some of these patients could be adequately treated in their home community, reducing travel time and expense, Holland added. BGH was able to obtain grants to fund construction and the purchase of this second CT scanner. A $200,000 grant from the Sunderland Foundation was awarded earlier this year specifically to construct the second CT suite. A $354,500 grant from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust covered one half of the purchase price of the CT scanner. Ultrasound was moved to the new imaging center and the new CT suite uh, took over that space, which is conveniently located next to the emergency department. Quote, we feel incredibly fortunate to have been granted these funds from the Sunderland Foundation and M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. We value their partnership in improving the care that we provide in our community, Cheryl uh, Rickard, BGH CEO, said. That's awesome. Glad to hear that. Uh, Expanding medical service here in our growing area. Love to hear that. Moving on, Festival celebrates record year. This summer's Festival at Sandpoint concert series didn't just break records, it shattered them. The 2022 Summer Concert Series' 10 concerts and its highest caliber lineup resulted in record ticket sales and sponsorships, Festival at Sandpoint officials said. The 2022 season sold 5,705 more individual tickets than any other year, grossed $360,000 more in ticket sales than any other year, and every show carried itself financially and exceeded sales goals. The season's success was announced as part of the festival at Sandpoint's annual report, which was released on December 8th. Quote, with new costly operations at Memorial Field, bigger concerts, and recovery from pandemic seasons, it was great to see that over the past 10 years, our impact has grown by 58% in regional states, 61% in gross regional product, 57% in total compensation, 47% in jobs created, and 96% in tax contribution, Ali Barnansky, Festival at Sandpoint Executive Director, said. Bar- Baranski said the festival sponsored a 2022 economic impact study through the University of Idaho to assess the economic contributions of the organization on the county. 
It's the first time an assessment has been done since 2012. A few key data points stood out of the many insights gained from this this new economic impact analysis, Bernanski said. According to the report, the festival has a conservatively estimated direct economic impact of $3.8 million on Bonner County, generates over $233,000 in city, county, and state taxes, and creates the equivalent of 37 full-time jobs in the community. It's pretty good. Outside of the summer contracts, Barnansky said, said the festival noted several updates in 2022. In October of 2021, the festival welcomed Paul Gunter as the new year-round education and production manager after 24 years of working as the seasonal production manager. With his arrival and an increased need for quality production locally, the festival now offers full production services, including lighting design and operation and live concert production for the greater Sandpoint area, Baranski said. Over the past year, the, f- the festival was excited to expand its music education programs and offerings. Also of note was the donation of 26 instruments and assorted equipment to the festival at Sandpoint's Instrument Library. The Pre-K Outreach Program, the festival's newest addition to its educational outreach repertoire, launched at two schools this spring. Quote, over 70 students at Selkirk School and Little Lambs Preschool completed a program in which they learned to play six different non-pitched percussion instruments, count and read rhyme rhythms, and learned to play parts within a group, she added. In the final meeting of 2022, the board elected Emily Bistline as president, Carrie House as vice president, Haley Carr as secretary, and Chris Blanford as treasurer. Dan Muhlenberg and Grant Nixon left the board due to term limits, and Ben Higgs was named as a new member of the board. Uh, There is a link in this story online at thebonnercountydb.com for more information. Moving on, Thursday, December 15th headlines, a dream come true. This is by Bo White Eagle. Sandpoint's ponies may be close to having a home of their own. With the help and work of the community, Reno and Clay Hutchinson told the Sandpoint City Council that their carousel of smiles has made significant progress over the past few years and could be completed in a few years. Quote, carousels are magic and have a power that brings people together, Reno told the council of why she and her husband, along with a team of volunteers, have worked to restore the Golden Age carousel. Reno grew up in Butte, Montana area and remembers the heartbreak when the community's carousel in the historic park Columbian Gardens was lost in a fire. One of the first contributions of the Copper Kings, Clay said the loss planted a desire in his wife to one day find and restore a carousel. With Sandpoint now their home, Clay said the dream never changed, especially after they found a a complete golden age carousel in a field in Kansas. Wow. He said that dream is coming together due to the hard work of the community. Quote, it's here in Sandpoint that we have all the ingredients we need for success with this project, said Clay. While initially at a loss on how to proceed after buying the circa 1920s Allen Herschel carousel, the couple said they connected with the National Carousel Association, did not know that that was a thing, an organization dedicated to restoring and preserving carousels. I had no, you know, you learn something every day. With former NCA president Betty L. Lang- Largent's help, the Hutchinson said they got invaluable support and, and help on how to turn that dream into a reality. With that in mind, Clay said the couple realized that, quote, carousels need synergy created by a community. In 2016, when the city announced they need for a year-round activity as part of the city beach master plan, the Hutchinsons realized they had the answer. 
installation of the carousel of smiles near City Beach. Showing the council updated renderings of the design for the Carousel Pavilion Arts and Events Center, adopted as part of the park's master plan in 2020, the Hutchinson said the carousel will be the centerpiece. With the help of various skill-based volunteers and countless hours, the carousel restoration began in 2018, from the, quote, gear and grease gang, to the Godfather squad, to the artists each play a key role in the restoration. Next came restoring the, quote, original beauty and integrity of the hand-carved wood horses, each 100 years old, Reno said. For this delicate work, the project has depended on a group of a comically named the Godfather Squad due to the fact that the process of restoring requires the horses' heads be taken off. Yes! Oh, that's hilarious. So that's, that's, ah, uh, they need to be in journalism because that's, oh, so, but someone needs to be paid somebody for that reference. Oh, thank you so much. From the beginning to the end, restoration of each horse takes more than 400 hours before they can be handed off to the artist to be painted, Clay Hutchinson said. After careful consideration and ensuring the center could meet city codes, the official plan to move the pavilion from City Beach to Sand Creek gave way for the preliminary design plans to begin in July of 2022. Again, showing what the design team had come up with, Clay told the council that while the carousel will be the, quote, highlight of the building, it, for any reason, had to be moved, it wouldn't make a significant impact because the building is meant to be a multi-use complex. Good for them. Sounds like they're they're moving forward with a goal of theirs and a dream. And, uh, hey, who doesn't like a carousel? Uh, it's better than a parade anyway, right? <laughs> Moving on, Friday, December twenty, uh, December 26th, not 26th, and we're jumping the gun here a little bit. Friday, December 16th headlines, their day in the sun. This is by Carolyn Lobsinger. Pretty soon, a U.S. Army cold weather research base will be able to harness the power of the sun when 180 panels from solar roadways are installed at the facility over the coming year. Quote, I always use the hashtag greener and safer because that really encapsulates for me what we're doing, Julie Broussaw told the Daily Bee. We're trying to help the Earth be greener and safer. It has national security implications since the military bases need to keep things safer as well as environmentally. I just love that we're able to put together a package that does all of that in one solar panel. The Sandpoint-based company learned this summer that they'd been selected for a small business innovative research project in an army base to test the panels in a real-world setting. But it wasn't until this fall that Solar Roadways founders Scott and Julie Bursaw learned what base, had been, uh, what base had been selected. The couple was able to visit the base, the Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory in Hanover. Ooh, that's cool. Um... To talk, with the, uh, to talk base officials and determine the best location on the campus like faculty like fac facility last month. The base's mission to deliver vital engineering solutions and develop solutions for Army installations, particularly in environmental sustainability and energy security, makes it, quote, a great match for solar roadways, Julie Broussaw said. Scott Broussaw joked that they'd originally hoped that there would be a base within driving distance, but said when they learned about the research lab, they realized that it was the perfect spot. Quote, they told me what they did and sent me the link to their website, and I'm clicking through and I'm looking at all this cold weather stuff they do, he said. I thought, this is perfect. All the guys there are civil engineers who work on roadways, pavement, and concrete, stuff like that. With its dedication to cold weather research and desire for a sustainable solution, the Broussaws said the New Hampshire base will showcase all of their panel's features. That's super cool. I've, if you haven't seen these panels, you've got to check them out. There's a display in downtown Sandpoint. 
super cool. As part of the grant, Solar Roadways will be installing panels on a pedestrian walkway as well as a portion of a parking lot. The location has seen a number of visitors and staff slip on the ice, something base officials hope the Solar Roadway panels will help prevent. Installation will take place next year, with the panels scheduled to be in place before the snow flies next winter. Once installed, the base will be able to test the newest panels, which will include all the best features of all previous iterations. Yeah, once again, uh, this is, even if you're not, you know, this is no plug, you know, not trying to sell these or anything, but the, these these things are just super cool from a, from a tech standpoint. Super duper cool. Love that, love that kind of stuff. The America's gold and silver-owned Galena Mine in Wallace, Idaho, is currently accepting applications for a variety of positions, both above and underground. America's gold and silver offers competitive wages, a full employee benefit package, which includes medical, dental, vision, life, and disability insurance, PTO, 401k, and a pension plan. To apply for the many open positions at the Galena Mine, visit www.americasgold.com forward slash careers. All right, everybody, jumping into Shoshone News Press headlines for Friday, December 16th. Headline, PK Lions Volunteers Honored for 65 Years of Service. This is by Molly Roberts. The Pinehurst Kingston Lions Club, or PK Lions, held a very special meeting this past Tuesday, celebrating and honoring Robert Fisher and James Benning with the Legacy Service Award for 65 years of incredible volunteer service. The room was filled with exciting family members, fellow PK Lions volunteers, Lions Club International representatives, and Idaho Governor Brad Little's executive office. Both men received a letter from Little, read by North, po- uh, North Idaho Policy Advisor Jake Garinger, thanking them greatly for their service, unwavering commitment, and dedication to serving the Silver Valley community. Quote, Mr. Fisher, your service heart, service heart is evidenced by your 65 years of volunteerism throughout the PK Lions Club, church leadership, and supporting the Kellogg High School basketball program. Hearing how you owned and operated a business company while still enrolled at Rose Lake High School to ensure your fellow classmates arrived at school was particularly heartwarming and is impressive on behalf of the citizens of Idaho, Garinger read. And Mr. Benning, I want to express my appreciation for your years of dedicated service to the people of our nation and state. There are a few values as meaningful and rewarding as performing service. After reading about your life, it's clear that the public service is valuable here. Similar sentiments were expressed throughout the evening as Lions International First District Governor Ken Cook presented the Chevron Award for their 65 years of dedicated service. Stories were told around the room by fellow members like Brad Kitchen, who said, quote, As a Lions Club member in this little North Idaho town, we have such a huge history, and we wouldn't have that history without people like Bob and Jim. Jim can tell you stories about putting the first street signs up in Pinehurst. Fellow PK Lions Club member Gary Yergler spoke about knowing Fisher throughout the years and the impact that he has made not only in Pinehurst, but the entire Silver Valley community. Quote, Bob has been a member in good standing with the Pinehurst Kingston Lions since 1957. Woo, that's a long time. For 65 years, he has been involved in serving the community with the PK Lions Club and continues to do so at the age of 95. Woo, getting up there. He continued to say that the Fisher that Fisher attends meetings and serves the community at our fundraiser events, which includes monthly breakfast, annual fireworks stand, and the infamous Burger Wagon appearing throughout the Silver Valley. Quote, he feels we can always uh, we, we can't always be in agreement on everything, so at every meeting he just makes sure to issue at least one no vote regardless. We do not adjourn any meeting without Bob's one no vote, said Yergler to the laughing guests. Fisher is truly a native Idahoan and pioneer of Shoshone County and the Silver Valley, as well as a valuable member of the PK Lions Club. 
As an added gift for their many years of service, the two gentlemen will have their lion's dues paid for for the rest of the t- by the rest of their time serving. If you would like to step up and volunteer in your community, the PK Lions Club meets every second, fourth Tuesday, second and fourth Tuesday of the month at 7 p.m. at the Lions Community Building located at 106 Church Street in Pinehurst. For more information, visit lionsclub.org or contact Linda Yergler at lindayergler at outlook.com. All right, other story from the show news press. Grocery outlet serving its community. This is also by Molly Roberts. Since its grand opening in October, Grocery Outlet Bargain Market has made its presence widely known as a community staple. This is predominantly because of the effort of a owner, Melinda Parks, who was born and raised in the Silver Valley. During the grand opening, the store donated $1,000 to the Silver Valley Snack Pack Program, which helps feed students at Pinehurst Elementary and Kellogg Middle Schools who experience food insecurity over the weekends and holidays. Parks, with the help of Nickerson's Towing, also provided 490 pumpkins to the students at PES, uh, Pinehurst Elementary School, so every student went home with a pumpkin for Halloween. The most recent goodwill gesture came from $1,000 in free groceries awarded to Silver Valley man Daryl Lortz. Lortz had lived in Kellogg for around 18 years, working as a miner at Greens Creek Mine based in Alaska and owned and operated by Hecla Mining Company. Quote, Prices have gone up, and so, and I have a son that's growing like a weed, and this will help get him all the food and snacks he needs, Lortz said. Parks has set up different community events like the Tree Lighting Festival at Silver Mountain and the Worship Center Community Christmas Dinner handling out free cookies and coupons. The Smelterville store often holds special sales posted to its social media, like the current wine sale from December 16th to the 27th, where customers can get 20% off discounts on all wines. Hey, that's a hell of a deal. Lord's added, quote, I would, like to give, I would like to give a thank you to Melinda Parks. I'm glad she came back to the Valley and built her store here. Grocery Outlet is a third-generation family-led company founded in 1946, offering customers significant savings on brand-name products. Follow Smelterville Grocery Outlet on Facebook. That's at Smelterville Grocery Outlet. Very cool. I haven't I haven't been in myself yet, but uh, Smelterville is my old stomping grounds for quite a while, so I uh, definitely need to pop in there and see what it's all about. Watts Appliance has been providing incomparable customer service to the Silver Valley for over 50 years. The family-owned and operated business has a wealth of knowledge regarding appliances and the brands they sell. Whether you're in need of a new washing machine or have questions about refrigerators, Watts Appliance is ready to help. Visit wattsappliance.com or stop by and visit at 3 North Division Street in Pinehurst. All right, folks, to round out the show, we're going to end with Bonner's Ferry Herald headlines coming for you from December 15th. Headline, Petition Calls to Change Border Crossing Hours. This is my Emily Bo Sung. Boy, we've been talking about this for quite a while, haven't we? Area residents recently launched a petition drive calling on the federal government to return Port Hill border crossing to pre-COVID-19 hours, citing the economic and social impacts of the reduced hours. Prior to the pandemic, the border crossing was open from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. However, for the past three years, the border closes promptly at 5, hindering commerce and connections with loved ones as Americans and Canadians have to rush back to the border before the dinner hour, organizers said in the petition. Boundary County resident Shirley Naylor said she launched the Change.org petition in order to open the border with friends and family on both sides of the border. Naylor said she frequently crosses prior to the pandemic. Quote, we were able to go to birthday parties, dinner, shopping, movies, church functions, dance, games, nights, etc. And at the end of the day, still be able to cross the border by 11 p.m. and make it back home that night, she told the Herald. 
Nyler said there was a whole thriving economy fueled by that ability to interact as a community. Quote, the 5 p.m. cutoff has effectively shut down our ability to have that same social and economic interaction, she wrote. It's quote, it's difficult to describe how life-changing it was to have an extra six hours every day. I personally have been very devastated in my social interactions by not being able to engage with my friends in Creston like I used to and have had really detrimental effects on my well-being. Nyler said she personally knows of hundreds of others in the same boat. U.S. border crossing hours are decided by the United States Customs. The petition isn't the only call for a return to pre-pandemic hours. David Sims, director of the Boundary County Economic Development Council, as well as the Kootenai Tribe of Idaho and Boundary Community Hospital, have asked that Idaho's congressional delegation advocate at the federal level for the border crossing to return to the extended hours. Kootenai Tribe officials have said that reduced hours at the border crossing restricts meaningful access to their sister tribe, the Lower Kootenai banned in British Columbia. It also imposes hardships on tribal members planning and attending family events in addition to participating in cultural events involving members on both sides of the border, they said. Boundary Community Hospital officials said the pandemic-restricted hours prevent the hospital from hiring needed staff from across the border, further hindering their ability to recover from staffing shortages. Businesses at Jake's Landing, a store throw from the border, stone throw from the border rather, has also faced financial struggles due to the slowing of the crossing border travel. On October 20th, the Idaho Congressional Delegation requested the Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection to restore the Port Hill Port of Entry hours of operation and return to pre-COVID-19 hours. Since then, the Commissioner has been replaced with an interim Commissioner, and officials said they are concerned an interim official would not be willing to make such a large decision in a temporary role. A new CBP, a CBP Commissioner must be appointed by the U.S. Senate, which Sims said might take some time since there is a largely new Senate. To sign the petition, go to change.org and search Change Port Hill Border Crossing to pre-COVID hours. Yeah, it's definitely been something going on for quite a while now. I know it's uh, upsetting folks in Bonners Ferry and the surrounding area. Moving on, Boundary County School Board approves second SRO. This is by Emily Bosung as well. The Boundary County School Board has approved a second school resource officer for the district's outlying schools. At Monday's meeting, the board approved a second resource officer since they haven't been able they have been unable to hire be, hire behavioral specialists through the use of federal funds. The officer will serve Mount Hall and Naples Elementary Schools. The position will be full-time on a one-year basis. SROs are jointly funded by the school district, City of Bonners Ferry, and Boundary County. The supplemental, the supplemental levy ballot, also known as the Maintenance and Operations Levy, was approved at the meeting unanimously, but is pending approval for the levy amount per $1,000. The levy is for $2.4 million and will cover expenses not covered by the state, such as teacher salaries, transportation for extracurricular activities, curriculum materials, safety, and maintenance. The levy is to run in the March of 2023 election. BCSD officials have projected that if the levy fails, 25% of the district's workforce will have to be cut. The district would lose 20 or more classified staff, one principal, and 8 to 10 teachers since their salaries are paid through levy funding. BCSD is appropriating funds for bleacher constructions at Mendenhall, Mendenhall Stadium. In order to make the bleachers ADA compliant, the district will have to add a path for, from the north gate to the bleachers and make the other structural changes. The board approved this project in a 4-0 vote at the November meeting. BCSD is continuing their, poli- their policy review. Policies under review are available at the district website. Also on the website are minutes of past meetings and executive council. The next BCSD Board of Trustees meeting is December 12th at the district office, 7188 Oaks street in bonners ferry once again we'd like to thank hecla mining companies for sponsoring this episode if you'd like to learn more about hecla mining company please visit heclamining.com 
All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening in for the to the show. We really appreciate it. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Uh, once again, please subscribe or follow us on whatever podcast or music app that you listen into us on. Please tell your friends about us. Leave us a nice review. And uh, yeah, if you're if you're interested in any of the stories we talked about today, check out our many websites: quarterlinepress.com, shoshonnewspress.com, bonnercountydailyb.com, or the bonnersferryherald.com. All right, everybody. Once again, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. Hope you guys are enjoying the winter weather. Hope you guys have a great uh, weekend, and we'll we'll see you next week.